There are many variations of a long-established expression. Repetition is the scourge. What exactly it's the scourge of varies depending on the subject. According to Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, repetition is the scourge of war. But not as big a scourge as having a hole put in your head, am I right? Not now, Abe. Oh, come on, I want to be in the show. You just were, now hush, Abe. According to other sources, repetition is the scourge of genius. When in reality, doing the same things over and over again is more a mark of insanity. Nowhere is that more evident than in the continuing and baffling number of reboots, remakes, rehashes, and reheats that Hollywood can't seem to live without because, Satan forbid, the notion of using an original thought is akin to committing a crime of some kind. Which stands to reason because any crime of any kind is often considered to be an act of chaos. And when things get a little too chaotic, it's up to cooler heads to maintain control. Even if it doesn't seem all that necessary to begin with. The old garbage trick, eh? That's the second time it's been pulled on me this year. And now, it just never ends, does it? This... Is Tallahassee. This story begins in the early 1960s. In spite of the peace and prosperity happening in most of the world, people were still on edge knowing that what was once known as the Soviet Union may or may not have had a few tricks left up their sleeve. This period was known as a number of things. The Cold War, the Red Scare, and, more ubiquitously, the rise of anti-communist media, particularly through a number of books, movies, and especially TV shows that showcase the world of espionage. A fancy way of saying... Spy Stuff. It was during the early 60s that people became enamored with the world of spies and secret agents. The James Bond books and subsequent movies certainly did their parts in the awareness. Meanwhile, on television, hard-boiled detectives gave way to agencies with unique code names, crafty gadgets, and globe-trotting adventures with a similar goal in mind, to prevent the world from being taken over by whoever the opposition was that week. 99% of the time, the Soviets or some kind of representation of them. With the genre gaining steam and reaching critical mass at the same time, it would only be a matter of time until the spy genre became so mainstream that spoofing it seemed like an inevitability. So, in 1965, a pair of up-and-coming young comedy writers were hired by NBC and production company Talent Associates to come up with the comedy equivalent to James Bond. The Inquisition, let's begin. The Inquisition, look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. Mel Brooks was the first writer hired. Already making a name for himself, both in writing for Sid Caesar's variety shows and later teaming up with Carl Reiner for the classic 2,000-year-old man routine, Brooks's knack for the absurd came in handy when coming up with the slapsticky part of the show. The spy material and subtle political commentary, on the other hand, would fall on the shoulders of a more cerebral comedy mind. And for that part of the story, let's let the late great Buck Henry tell that part. Danny Melnick ran the production entity of the Susskind for the Susskind company. And one day he called me in. 
He had already called Mel in, and a beautiful example of bottom line. He said to me, have you noticed that the two huge hits wandering around the world out there in the film business are Bond and Clouseau? Get the picture? Yeah. I get the picture. Most of the laughs came courtesy of this show's leading man, comedian Don Adams as Maxwell Smart, Agent 86, whose nasal voice alone did more to create the polar opposite image of the typical spy if his constant bumbling around didn't do that first. Hello, operator. Now listen to me and listen carefully. I want you to get me a special Washington phone number. This is a top secret number. The number is 683097. Oh, you want control. He would team up with someone who would be many baby boomers' first crush, Barbara Feldon as Agent 99. Here's your coffee, sir? I didn't order any coffee. Take the coffee, Max. 99. What are you doing here? I'm backing you up on this assignment. Both of whom would get their marching orders from the eternally irritated chief of the control agency, played by Edward Platt. Max, every time we use the corner silence, something terrible happens. Can't you just write it to me on a piece of paper? People can read a piece of paper, Chief. I'll burn it afterwards. Ashes can be reassembled. All the talent, plus many others, were put together. Get smart. And for five seasons, it was a spy satire that lived up to its name, while at the same time giving those who were Cold War weary something to laugh about. Then, as good things often do, Get Smart would come to an end in 1970 while still at the top of their game, and with numerous Emmy wins to boot. But it wouldn't be the end of Maxwell Smart. Many years after the series ended, Get Smart would see a number of comebacks, not counting the seemingly endless number of commercials where Don Adams would reprise Maxwell Smart just to sell a few things, but we'll play some of those later. Most notably, in a 1980 theatrical release simply called The Nude Bomb, a more than apt title when it came to critics and box office, even if that title was changed for TV broadcasts under the name The Return of Maxwell Smart. Would you believe Maxwell Smart is single-handedly taking on the crazed fashion designer from chaos? Would you believe what will happen if he fails? Believe it. After that disaster, it would take another nine years for Get Smart to make its second comeback. This time around, Agent 99 would return along with Max, when the ABC network decided to Get Smart again. Beware America, Maxwell Smart and 99 are back in town. Chaos is back in business. That's still classified information? What? Sorry about that. Be careful. Don Adams and Barbara Feldon bring a TV classic back with an all-new adventure. Would you believe? Get smart again someday. Unlike the nude bomb, the 1989 TV movie wound up drawing a respectable enough rating the week that it aired that it got Hollywood wondering whether or not the time was right to put Agent 86 and 99 back in commission for a new series. Thing is, the original Get Smart was very much a product of its time. The geopolitical landscape of the era sort of dictated it that way. Some 30 years after the fact, and the world had become a much different place. One where it seemed as though spoofing spies or even serious takes on them became passe by then. Hell, by 1989, nobody was interested in James Bond anymore either, and not entirely through the fault of Timothy Dalton. So why would anybody want to see another revival of Get Smart aside from invoking pointless nostalgia? 
Would you believe this network tried to answer the call? Fox. 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 Note to self, call an exterminator. They've been getting far too many foxes around here lately. But yes, the Fox Network is a central player in this story once again. A mere six years after the TV movie aired, Fox, whose programming by that point in history was a combination between hip, young, urban, and envelope pushing, decided to take a chance on resurrecting a show that, by that point, was 30 years old. Young by any other standard, but completely ancient for television. So what could the Fox Network do to get the young folks out there interested in a property that was considered geriatric by TV standards? That was up to show developers Mike DiCatano and Lawrence Gay to figure out. Both gentlemen already having experience both in TV writing and in working for revivals of existing properties. Most notably as two of the staff writers for NBC's 1990 attempt to turn Ferris Bueller into a sitcom. Which I'll get to this season, I promise. Like many ideas, the duo's idea for this revival made a lot of sense on paper. For starters, Maxwell Smart was now the chief of the control agency, partly because Edward Platt passed away 20 years earlier and Ellen Arkin wasn't ready to play him yet in a yet-to-be-written movie with Steve Carell. As for Agent 99, she would leave the spy business for something a little more lucrative. A seat in Congress. Yes, Congresswoman 99. And no, they never ever reveal her full name, ever. In essence, the stars of the original would actually be taking a back seat in favor of some new yet predestined blood. In the original series, Max marries Agent, now Congresswoman 99, and it's later revealed in one of the movies that the two of them are the parents of twins, one male and one female. In the revival, the female is nowhere to be seen, yet. But it's the male twin, Zachary Smart, who will carry on his father's name. And he would be played by an up-and-coming young talent named Andrew Dick. You called? Uh, what are you doing here? Uh, did you not just mention Andrew Dick? <sighs> no, not you, Andrew Dick, from the That Week in SNL podcast, wherever you can hear fine podcasts all over the world. I meant Andrew Dick, the comic actor and human equivalent to a full-body dry heave. So, why not just say Andy Dick? Because I'm trying to make a serious point about the guy, and I always use the formal name whenever I'm being serious about something. Fair enough. So, you don't need me and Timmy for this one? No, but I am kind of curious as to how you got here without me dragging you this time. Well, you never did patch up the hole from when you dragged us down here to do the Gilda Radner TV movie. Uh, so I used a rope to rappel myself down here. A rope that I now see is catching fire, so if you don't need me for anything else, I gotta run. By the way, this guest appearance is gonna cost you $500. Uh... Yeah, sure. Andrew Dick, ladies and gentlemen. That was weird. Anyway, so we don't run this joke into the ground. Let's try again. An up-and-coming young comedian named Andy Dick. I'm Andy Dick, and I've got a million stories. I don't remember most of them. There was this Christmas. <laughs> Satan knows many things have been said about him 
his brand of humor, and his various tabloid-grabbing antics over the years. But other than that, deep down, I'm sure Andy Dick seems like a genuinely good guy, if you have weapons-grade earplugs at hand. He already established himself as a bit of a comedy ingenue on Fox's critically acclaimed and short-lived Ben Stiller show in 1992, as well as a handful of sitcom and movie appearances. It was certainly quirky enough to be considered air quotes funny in small roles, but would that same level of quirky be enough for him to have what is practically a leading role? Don't answer that question just yet, because we still have yet to meet Zach Smart's partner. And because this is the Fox Network, what would one of their shows be without a little eye candy? Being young and beautiful is not a crime, you know. And for your 411, I adore your father. He's exactly the kind of man I always planned on marrying. This is the real deal, honey, and nothing you do is going to come between us. Hate to break it to you, Angel. But you are no longer the only girl in Nick Parker's life. Another up-and-coming young star in 1995 was that of Elaine Hendricks, who, not unlike her future co-star, also made her bones through a number of small parts in various movies and TV series, and would eventually see much bigger ones later on. She would play Andy Dick's version of Agent 99, here to be named Agent 66 because calling her Agent 69, even on a mid-90s Fox series, would be about as subtle as taking a dump in a bear trap. Now that all the players are in place, all that was needed was a time slot. The Fox Network, having just recently landed the rights to NFL football by that point, thought it would have made sense to place a promising show in a prominent position, and be the show that aired immediately after football coverage and lead into The Simpsons. Again, a smart move on paper. But, as we'll find out, the smartest moves on paper sometimes leads to pure stupidity. Then an evil doctor wants to carve up control. Take me instead. I'm young and I'm healthy. You're next. (laughs) On a brand new Get Smart. We'll see why this relic of the Cold War should have stayed frozen. After the break. I used to have a partner until electronic detective that computerized whodunit game. It began when Buster Bailey bought a bullet. My partner and those two other characters obviously knew it took logic and reasoning. It was man against machine. So they plastered the computer with questions. But with over 100,000 possible murder situations, you can't jump to conclusions. After all, a wrong accusation gets you shot. So I ran a check. And sure enough, Lucy Tumble was uptown at the card party. And her prints were on the 45. It all added up. Lucy was the killer, right? Wrong. Wrong. Wrong? Lucy and I were uptown playing cards. So was Eileen Steller and Pepe Perez. Lucy's prints were on the 45, but only Dina Ricchetti knew whose prints were on the 38. Now, if the 45 was uptown with Lenny Little and the 38 was downtown with Dina Ricchetti, then the killer had to be Eileen Steller. Of course. Electronic Detective, the computerized whodunit game from Ideal. Sure, I used to have a partner, but he doesn't need me anymore. Big deal. Who cares? This week on Telehell's premium content of the Dan. Wow, somebody's letting go today. It's okay. I had Subway for lunch. 
Subway, delicious low-fat sandwiches, so you can feel good about being good and okay about being bad. It's okay. I had Subway. Subway, good, so you don't always have to be. The only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now... Back to this week's torture. January 8th, 1995. Philly's third baseman, Mike Schmidt, was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Cotton Eye Joe by Rednecks was somehow a hit song that will probably go into Hell's Music Hall of Fame. And at 7.30, 6.30 Central, the Cold War picks up where it left off, as the head of the opposing agency, Chaos, briefs her members on plans to take over the world. And the one thing I'll give credit to the show for is the fact that its main villain, though largely unseen throughout the series, is both female and the head of an evil organization, which, even in 1995, was pretty rare to see on TV. We may have lost the Cold War, but we will win the next war. The goal of the new chaos, total world economic domination. There's an indestructible new fabric called Dutracolon. It's worth $50 billion to the Chaos Corporation. We must have it. And no one, no one will stop us. Take it away, Inspector Gadget. Except for Maxwell Smart. It's the president on line one. Through a series of wacky slapstick involving pouring coffee on a computer, causing it to light on fire, and set off the office sprinklers, there's a look of resignation on Adams's face, wondering if he had already made a big mistake and should have decided to retire while keep collecting residuals from the original series. Mr. President? Yes, sir, I'll hold. On the plus side, we get to hear the classic Get Smart theme song updated for the 90s. And while it's nice to hear the old theme again, the imagery that's being presented pales so much in comparison to the original that it's kind of anemic. The original title sequence has Smart arriving at a nondescript building with many hallways leading to a phone booth that, once dialed, opens a trap door that sends him to the offices of Control. And the atmosphere of that sequence allowed the viewer to believe that even though this is a comedy show, the spy undertones give us the notion that the show was meant to be taken as seriously as it is a joke. In 1995, the credits become a joke in an entirely different way. Gone is the nondescript and subtle locations. In comes wacky shenanigans at a car wash, as Agents 86 and 66 enter in their convertibles with their tops locked on. But Pauly Shore's co-star from In the Army Now couldn't get his on in time, and uh uh-oh, he's now getting sprayed with car wash stuff. 
This is immediately followed by the three of them getting into a soda machine elevator to get to work in place of a phone booth, while the credits end with a random passerby sitting in a chair where the soda machine elevator was just standing, only to be flung into the ceiling once it rises up again. The fact alone that I just dedicated a paragraph of script writing on just how bad the title sequence is without getting into the story just goes to show that we're possibly in the midst of witnessing a war crime. Act 1 begins with a look at Max Smart and Congresswoman 99's current lives. Max, I just came from my committee. I've got so much to tell you. Aren't you going to say hello, 99? Hi, Max. We were in close session with the president for four hours. 99, ever since you won that stupid election, it's been business, business, business. We all agreed that the new Chaos Corporation poses an economic threat too big to ignore. You're not going to ask how I am, right? I'm sorry, Max. How are you? Well, well, well. We meet again, Mr. Laugh Track. That's right, folks. This is going to be another one of those instances where they use canned sound effects to try and bring us, the audience, to the verge of laughter. And I know what you're thinking. Didn't the original show use a laugh track, too? Indeed, they did. But at least on that show, not only were there funny jokes, but there were also some episodes where they didn't have to use it. Here, if the title sequence was about as subtle as a poke in the eye with a cactus, the use of a laugh track in this show will be as subtle as that same cactus being used to hit you upside the head. And speaking of a lack of subtlety... Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Oh, hi, Zach. How's everything in research? Big stuff cooking. Uh Chaos just set up holding companies to purchase three Taiwanese textile mills. Not only that... The, um... Printer is out of ink. Forget about that, son. I've got great news for you. Savor that moment, folks, because we may never see or hear Andy Dick be that subtle ever again. Especially once Papa Smart tells him the good news over Ma's objections. I am promoting you to full agent status. Really? Are we forgetting who broke two legs and a pelvis in spy training? Mom, I got a B-plus in sneaking up on people. Don't brag, son. I had to make a few calls. Zach, do you realize what you'd be getting into? Living every day undercover, your life in constant danger, suffering painful torture at the hands of vicious, ruthless people. And loving it. I think Agent 99 was speaking out of character directly to Andy Dick. But before we turn this into a cautionary tale, we go to Control's lab, where we go from poking the eye and smack to the face to all the subtlety of a cactus enema, as we meet Agent 66 in all her libido-inducing, Fox-audience-baiting glory, while at the same time possibly inspiring Jay Roach to come up with a joke for his future Austin Powers movies. Oh, there you are, 66. Hi, Chief. The blood bra fits perfectly, Dwayne. Let's go ahead and load it. What I do for my country. Uh, I've got a mission for you, 66. Have you ever done any modeling? Would have been a waste of grade-A meat if I hadn't. And let's not mince words here. Agent 66 is pretty much the reason why the show got picked up. Not because of interest in reviving a TV classic, not because we wanted to see a relic of said TV classic do his thing one more time, it's because this is a Fox show of the mid-90s. And if Fox shows of the mid-90s do anything right and wrong at the same time, it's using the scantily clad to sell the show. Just ask Baywatch. 
and tangent over as Chief Maxwell tells Agent Sexpun the good news. There is a new indestructible fabric. It's called the Tracalon. Now, it's being made into a dress, and it's going to be unveiled at a fashion show this weekend. So I model the dress and keep chaos from getting it. Unless the dress is orange. I hate orange. Actually, it's, it's red. More of a, a cardinal red, leaning towards a flame red, just not so harsh. Who is this? This is my son, Zach. Oh, hello. Where did you go to school? It's a thrill to finally meet you. You're a a legend down in research. To think that you and I are going to be partners is... Wow. No. If the series was banking on the idea of these two polar opposites having the same chemistry as Max and 99 did back in the day, the result would be about the same as dropping a piece of fulminated mercury. This is not meth. So what do you know about this mission? Well, chaos, that's the bad guys. If they get the dress, that means a 13% drop in the gross national product. Chief, he's going to get me killed, and I don't need that in my life. You know, from your picture in the lobby, you looked a lot friendlier. Well, we'll settle this in my office. I'll meet you there in five minutes. Would you believe? Ten. Oh, by the way, the thing that the fake audience is laughing at right now... Nothing more than the aging Maxwell Smart getting into more wacky shenanigans, this time involving a military strength adhesive that we never see, hear, or talk about again. Way to keep the action going, Agent 86. We then slam cut ourselves to a fashion show, because it's the mid-90s and showing off style was in style back then. The two reluctant agents try to hatch a plan as they meet up with an envoy, who bears a striking resemblance to Tom Smikowski of Inatech, who happens to deliver the secret code phrase that I'm sure Andy Dick has heard at least one time in his life while popping pills. I tremble at the thought of your touch. I'm sorry, pal, but I don't swing that way. That was the code, remember? Oh, yeah. My lust for you knows no bounds! As the subtlety goes from Cactus Wrecking Ball to Cactus Thumbscrew, the three of them hatch a plan to stop Chaos from stealing the fabric. Are they going to be bold and daring like 86 and 99 used to be, or... I'm going to model that dress. You have to trust me. Once I slip it over my creamy, white skin, no wicky people will take it away. You're in very, very good hands, Mr. Winters. Use the power of the female libido over something that's actually tactical. Look, it's not that I have anything against using sex to sell, especially when it's done the right way. But as is the case with many things, there's also wrong ways to execute things. All that's missing is for the laugh track to have obnoxious hooting and hollering like most Fox sitcoms did back then, and the illusion is complete. Now a word to our audience. Even though we're being broadcast on Fox, there's no need for obnoxious hooting and hollering. As Andy Dick continues to stick out like a sore thumb that's been fully sliced off its hand, we then get to meet another new character to the show. That of Agent Zero, Control's Master of Disguise. So much so that Agent Zero is played by a different actor every time the show needs the character. Which, I'll concede, is not only a clever touch, but also somewhat progressive for 1995, since the character could be just about anybody, male or female. What's more, the idea of a random actor playing the same character each week does add an air of mystery and possibly a reason for people to keep tuning in. 
Or at least they would if they were able to get A-list actors to play him or her. Unfortunately, the biggest name that they could get to play Agent Zero was Robert Goulet. And he's not even in this episode. You all right? For 60 bucks, the least you could do is say if ever I would leave you a Camelot. I'm not Robert Goulet, Chief. This is me, Agent Zero. Agent Zero? That's a brilliant disguise. Next time, try and learn the words, huh? But getting back to this story, our Agent Zero this time around is a simple waitress at the fashion show who tries to give Agent Dick a heads up. Who's working for chaos? You were just talking to him. The guy with the, the ponytail? His name's Lars. Big deal European designer until sequins wiped him out. I've been tracking him in a wiener, Mike. <laughs> I have information there's a control agent present. Find him now and inflict on his body the most unspeakable pain and suffering ever known by man or beast. You're gonna show Andy Dick the 54 other TV shows that we've covered down here so far? But seriously, now that we know who the target is, it's up to our agents to keep things under control. This can be done one of two ways. Professionally indiscreet, or... Ladies and gentlemen, the world premiere of the indestructible fabric to track along, its creator, Mr. Simon Winters. Completely lose the very thing that you were hired to protect while amping up the libido quota on a Fox series because it would be too easy to do the right thing after only one half of the show. Missed it by that much. Which, if my calculations are correct, means that we'll be starting Act 2 with the team getting chewed out for not being able to do that simple task, right? What the person in this booth says gets beamed up to a satellite orbiting the Earth. Gets all mixed up so the bad guys can't understand nothing. Then bounces back down to the person in this booth, clear as day. Of course. They all talk into this booth, bounce off the satellite, comes back to this booth for the scramble trick. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. The old try to reintroduce an old joke from the old series in the hopes that a connective thread between both series will be enough to get people of all ages to watch Trick. That happened to me twice already. And speaking of bringing old gags back from the dead, what would Get Smart have been without the Cone of Silence, everybody's favorite cumbersome lapse of national security? Unfortunately, earlier in the episode, we saw that old Coney was out of commission for good. But since this is the 1990s, new advances in technology have been made so that we have a new Cone of Silence, minus the cones, but still serving its purpose. Dad, the dress was stolen by a designer named Lars. What? I can't understand. Holy cow, we've got the bases loaded and nobody out. Chief, can you turn the game off? This is important. I feel springtime fresh and dry as me. Well, I'm very happy for you, 66, but what happened to the dress? If by purpose you mean waste the audience's time with pointless filler disguised as thinly veiled humor. In which case, mission accomplished. Except, of course, for the mission that's currently in jeopardy. Damn. The dress was stolen by a designer named Lars. Well, we've got to get it back. He probably took the dress to his factory. I can get it back, but I should go alone. It's much too dangerous for the boy. I eat danger for breakfast, baby. 66, you're going to need back. You eat danger for breakfast? No. The duo infiltrates the warehouse where the chaos agent is holding the dress hostage. What's the plan this time? You create a diversion. I'm going to search Lars's office. Better idea. I'll use the sound effects pen. 
thing. Excuse me. I am a trained government agent, okay? Excuse me. Lars sucks. You know what? For shits and giggles, I'm just going to look ahead to the rest of the series to see what kind of adventures these two young ingenues will be getting themselves into since there were only seven episodes aired anyway. Let's see. Episode 2 is a spoof of the original Casino Royale because the better Casino Royale didn't exist yet. Episode 3 involved Agent 66 being put under mind control. Episode 4 involved Zack and Agent 66 becoming undercover rock stars trying to stop chaos from delivering subliminal messages. Episode 5 involved Zack and 66 protecting Congresswoman 99 and an ambassador. Episode 6 involved Zack dating somebody who turns out to be the daughter of original Chaos Agent Sig. Freed, a.k.a. Doc from The Love Boat, and Episode 7 involves stealing organs from transplant patients. Fox had to have known what they were getting themselves into, right? When most TV shows try to sell themselves to the networks, one of the things that they do in due diligence is tell the network what the overall story of the show was going to be over a five-year period. Or, as it's known to some, a show bible. Which means that in 1995, somebody at Fox thought that the idea of stealing organs for humor purposes was a good idea. A good idea that continues to bear rotten fruit as Agent Dick's diversion allows 66 to become one of the few non-bumblers on the show. Or at least for a few minutes, because she inevitably gets caught, in more ways than one, by the Chaos Agent. You... thought you'd never get here. In case that wasn't clear, there's a possibility that Agent 66 is actually a double agent for Chaos. But wait, I hear you not exclaim due to 90% of the audience changing the channel to 60 minutes 20 minutes ago. She's in the main credits. There's no possible way she could be batting for the other team, right? Have you heard from the Chaos people? It's all set, my love. Give them the dress at the airport, collect our eight million dollars, catch flight 403 to Geneva at 1.14 a.m. Your attention to detail makes me so hot. Just to be sure, Agent Dick calls up Papa Chief, which brings us to one more visual gag that they bring out of the mothballs, the ever-popular shoe telephone, which, since it's the 90s, is actually high tops in place of wingtips. A gag which, not for nothing, reminds me of this piece of wisdom from the great Mr. T. I pity Maxwell Smart. He had to put a shoe on his mouth to use a phone. That's unhygienic, fool! But good hygiene practices will have to wait, as Agent Dick breaks the bad news. Spoiler alert, something falls through. And I don't just mean the ratings. (laughs) That didn't hurt. You are like a bug. Grim. He's a control agent. Get rid of him. Yeah, what a waste of a body. You could have used that body for the forces of blood. Molly wished some people could hire security to haul away Andy Dick. Others wished that they could torture him in the way that Chaos is about to do, by tying him up and lowering him into a fabric-dying vat. Truthfully, I would have preferred something old-fashioned, like a lava pit or an acid pit. But, you know, why miss out on the opportunity to say that somebody has been died to death? But because this is a pilot, of course Agent Dick survives. Unfortunately. 
as a random factory foreman comes by to save the day. But not just any foreman. Doing okay, Zack? Zero? Is that you? Yeah. Although it is difficult finding neck hair on such short notice. Call zero. Which leaves us with the matter of who Agent 66 is really working for. Chaos or control? And since this is a piece of spy-related media, it can be explained in the most simple yet convoluted of ways. You've got a lot of explaining to do, 66, if that's your real number. Mars is about to lead me right to his chaos contact. I could have nailed them both. Ha! Dad, she's lying. She tried to have me killed. Who do you think made sure Agent Zero was there backing you up? You're still not off the hook, 66. You were heading for that door with that dress to give to chaos. It's not the real dress. I made the switch when the lights went out. Everybody got that? Good! I know that multiple counts of crossing, whether it be double cross, triple cross, quadruple cross, whatever, is as much a part of the spy genre as a spy's gadgets or the cars that they drive. But in order for the double cross to truly work, the audience has to be fully invested in what they're watching. Aside from maybe a handful of nostalgia-related winks at the past, there hasn't exactly been any moments during the show where I cared enough about the protagonist that I would actually call that explanation important to the story. On the plus side, this moment leads to a scene that many of us could only wish we could see play out in this lifetime or the next. Andy Dick getting shot. You foolish wench. Look out, 66! Oh my god, is he dead? Missed him by that much. But of course, we're not so lucky, since this is only the first episode, and Agent Dick is protected by his trusty Agent Manual. Somebody way up there clearly hates me. And of course, of course, of course, our two agents come to the realization that maybe they might work better together than they thought. I'd like to apologize for not trusting you with my plan. Thank you. But I'm not the apologetic type. Where are you going? Skiing in Austria. Don't ask. The Sultan doesn't like it when I bring guys on the jet. Wait. I mean, we, we just had a, a whole mission together, and I don't even know your real name. It's tattooed somewhere on my body. Since we're partners, I might just let you look for it. And with one last piece of pandering to the Fox audience, there's really only one conclusion about the revival of Get Smart. In a word... Stupid! You're so stupid! But if you want a more detailed conclusion, you know where to find us. Would you believe the nine circles? Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery... On average, the series only racked up 5 million viewers throughout the seven episodes that aired. Part of the reason why the numbers were so low were the undeniable facts that, number one, the world wasn't clamoring for a Get Smart revival, and number two, it was the wrong show at the wrong time, let alone at the wrong network. Never mind the fact that a show about spies in the 90s seemed like a desperation play. It wasn't half as desperate as the show tried to be in catering to the audience of the network that it found itself on, largely through Elaine Hendricks combining sass and sex with the hopes that they would wrangle up the male demographics that just finished watching a football game. But when not even pro football as a lead-in could save your ass, the hill to climb is staggering. No matter how much lust you throw at everybody. To say nothing of the comedic, violent sight gags that would take place throughout the show. 
But even if that wasn't a factor, the fact remains that the show was a needless photocopy. And if you don't believe me, would you believe Agent 99 herself, Barbara Feldon, via this interview with the TV Academy as to why this reboot failed? We knew the moment we walked on the set it was the wrong thing. You know, it, it, it was the, the whole thing was taken out of its time. And they tried to make the humor more cutting edge and, you know, m- more innuendo, just to say the least innuendo, I mean sexier. And I think it showed how, how hard it is to take something out of its own time. It has nothing to do with the talent of anyone involved in it. It's just that it, it just didn't, didn't work and it, it, we knew. What had attracted you to take, to take that series? I, I did it because Don did it. And Don said he did it because I did it. I <laughs> said, <So>, okay, <laughs> we should have talked on the phone. So let's break down what 99 said. Aside from rampant innuendo, the show was a product of its time. The original one, that is. It being the peak of the Cold War. By the 90s, that pretty much ended. And they had to stretch for why exactly there needed to be spies 30 years after the fact. This resulted in a show that was Get Smart in name only. Suffice to say, it was both a fraudulent product and pointless heresy compared to the original. Then you had that part at the end where it sounded like both Adams and Feldon didn't really want to do the show unless the other one was interested. And since both actors were pretty much pushing their 70s, who could blame them? So presumably, both of them had to be paid a raft of money in order to appear in it, but not so much that Adams gets top billing while Feldon gets placed in the secondary credits. Regardless of that disparity, a gig's a gig. And if the price is right, they'll take it, no matter how greedy it made them look. And finally, there was also one other matter of the plot that unfortunately never got resolved. The whereabouts of the female twin to the Smarts' children. Well, remember that chaos lady from the opening? No one will stop us. According to some sources, the rumor was that the Chief of Chaos, played by character actor Marsha Mitzman-Gavin, was actually supposed to be the female twin, a.k.a. Agent Dick's sister. While I wish I cared as to how they would eventually get to that development, the fact that the show got cancelled after seven episodes meant that this plot point would forever remain in limbo. And all because the ratings of the show missed it by that much. And a whole lot more. The 1995 Get Smart revival earned six out of nine circles of telehell. Which is just as well, because chances are some of the other reasons why the ratings may have been so low was because of everything else that was on opposite, pummeling it within an inch of its life. Like America's Funniest Home Videos on ABC, football coverage on NBC, and the aforementioned warhorse of 60 Minutes on CBS. Either that, or maybe people just weren't into spy media as they used to be. And with that, I'm going to defer our conclusion to another famous Andy. Maybe he can put everything into perspective. Name something, besides light switches and designer jeans and soap bars, that Andy Rooney has never been able to take seriously. I've never been able to take spying seriously. I have this theory that when a spy is caught, he ought to be spanked and put to bed without his supper and not allowed to go out and play with the other spies again for two weeks. It's my opinion that very little would be lost to any country if they quit spying altogether. The most important information a spy ever gets about another country is a list of that country's spies. Spies are a strange word. There are good spies and there are bad spies. Our spies are good. Their spies are bad. 
James Bond, for instance, is a good spy. I like to think my country is doing all good and honorable things, nothing sneaky. If that's true, what do we care whether the Russians are listening or not? No wonder they did well on Sunday nights. Next time on Telehell, what better way to spend Thanksgiving than to be surrounded by relatives that you could do without? Dad, face it, you screwed up big time. Where is it written that women in the sex industry can't go to movie premieres? Someone show me where. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Special thanks to the other Andy Dick of this episode, Andrew Dick of the That Week in SNL podcast. Listen to him and Tim Sakali host the show anywhere you can hear podcasts. And be sure to throw a couple coins their way at patreon.com slash thatweekinsnl. Our announcer is Mike Porter. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds? Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash Podcast. Podcast.